Luke chapter 6, we come to the end now of the sermon preached here by Jesus. For a few weeks, we've been walking through the words of Jesus himself here in this sermon. This morning, we're just going to look at these two simple illustrations that are given in this text that you just heard read, the tree and its fruit, the house and its foundation. Two really simple illustrations in the reading of itself, I, th- I think the impact, the truth of it hopefully lands in your heart and your mind. Simple as they are, they're incredibly powerful, incredibly important for us. When we come to Scripture and we start talking about sanctification, perseverance, good works, bearing fruit, however that, that language is used, it, it's, it can be a little tricky But it's of utmost importance for us that we understand what we're talking about, especially as we begin to speak of fruit of good works as an assurance of the grace of God within you, and as we start to speak of it in relation to faith and fruit or grace and works. There's kind of a narrow path we need to walk down to understand it appropriately. You you come too far on one side and you start to err on the side of of legalism, you start to undermine the truth of the solas, of Christ alone, faith alone, grace alone. You stand in a heresy as we start to add something beyond Jesus alone for our salvation. But if you go too far on the other side, you start to come into a form of, of license You start to tread dangerously where you call Jesus your Lord, but there is no lordship in your life. And you walk closely to a line of unbelief. It's important we get it. It's many denominations, many cults, Protestantism, Roman Catholicism can largely find their identity on how they understand Belief and obedience, faith and works, grace alone and bearing good fruit. So as we look at these illustrations this morning, we want to make sure we don't say the wrong thing, say more than it's saying, but at the same time, let the weight of Jesus' words land hard as He presents them so that we'd fall under the weight of God's Word. In these words, there is both comfort and there is command. There is both warning and And there is promise. And that's how the Lord's Word is presented to us for our sanctification and our perseverance. Three things to remember as we go into this text. If you remember, kind of as we've come along, first of all, in Luke, we get to Luke chapter 4, and Jesus tells everyone who's listening what He is about to do, and that is that He is going to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. He is proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And so this proclamation begins and he teaches and it, uh, he also proclaims it through demonstration or he demonstrates the kingdom, his authority over the sickness, his authority over the demons, both in the he- a spiritual realm and a physical realm, you see this authority of the king. And so we come to Luke chapter 6 and it begins to morph a little bit as he begins to tell us, how then do you walk as citizens of the kingdom? What does it look like in your life to be a citizen of the kingdom? And he's going to begin to lay out for us what that looks like. And you remember now, we've hit it for a few weeks. It looks like loving your enemy. 
It looks like being compassionate, gentle, loving mercy, being one who is quick to forgive. And we see that being a citizen of the kingdom is not a passive idea. The kingdom is not passive. The kingdom is on the offensive. The kingdom of God is invading the domain of darkness. It is invading this age that is passing away. It is on the offensive. And so does our pursuit then of doing good, of loving, of showing mercy, of showing compassion. It can't just be a passive refrain from doing wrong. It's an active pursuit of doing good to others. That's what I think is so helpful in the catechism as we looked at the law. If you remember, each commandment kind of lays out the commandment for us and then it tells us both what it forbids and what it requires. There's a pursuit of obedience and holiness. So that's the first thing to remember is this context of living as a citizen of the kingdom of God. What is that expectation? Secondly, remember, we're still in a context of of dealing with believers in the midst of persecution and pressure and hardship. So when we're called to act as citizens of the kingdom, to love, to have mercy, to forgive, it's not in the context of everything is going perfectly for you. So show mercy to your favorite person. Love the people who love you just right. No, this is real life. I mean, it's real life just like it is for us. When we, you're always going to have difficult situations around you. You're always going to have difficult, situation, difficult relationships in your life. And this is the situation. This is the relationship that Jesus is speaking into. Love those who maybe you're not standing with a gun to your head, but love those who are antagonistic to you. Love those who don't love you just right. Love those who maybe you feel are holding a grudge against you. And so these commands are in that context of pressure, of trial, of testing. Thirdly, remember what we started with last week. Judge not that you be not judged. If you remember, we'll kind of do the same thing again this week. I ask everyone to think about When I say judge not, you're thinking about the person who judges you, all right? So you just think about it for a minute. Now stop thinking about them for the rest of the service, because this is a call to you to examine your own heart and your own life. That's the whole point of that context as we come right before we, we enter into our text here. It's the idea of, you know, don't be examining the speck in someone else's eye when you have a log in your own eye. And kind of that absurd illustration of, we use this beam here as an example, of of me having this beam running through my face. And I see Chris sitting over here, and he's got a little speck in his eye. And I'm wanting to know how that got in his eye, what he plans to do about it, letting him know he looks like an idiot with that speck in his eye. Meanwhile, I have this beam sticking through my face. It's like, that's absurd. Well, that's the absurdity of the way we stand in judgment and condemn others. So if through the sermon you're only thinking of, oh, I hope this person hears this. Oh, I hope, I hope, I hope. You, me, all of us, we're the one with the log, with the beam in our eye. So the examination needs to turn inward. Now when we turn and we start talking about bearing fruit and good works, the same thing applies. It's not looking around, seeing, oh, what kind of fruit? I wonder how I can judge them by... I can tell what's in their heart by what they did. What they, the examination is to turn inward once again, to start at home. That's what the text tells us. Deal with the log in your own eye before you address the speck 
and someone else. <clears throat> so, with those three kind of ideas, living as kingdom citizens, in an age where not everything is working out just right, where situations are difficult, where the pressure of the domain of darkness you feel, now examine yourself, not your neighbor, in light of God's Word. And with that, we'll jump into the first example. So, really, all we're going to do is simply walk through the two examples, do some application along the way, not much of an outline this morning. The example one, the tree and its fruit... Verse 43, for no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. Probably the first thing to get in mind is what are we talking about with good and bad? We're not talking about kind of just two maybe neutral individuals. One does more bad things, so they become a bad person. This person, you know, is just essentially a better person, so you have good and you have bad. That's not what we're talking about. It's a simple illustration, and so simply stated, good is the person whose heart is regenerate, who has been redeemed, who has a heart that is alive, that is a new heart. One who is a kingdom citizen. So when we talk about good heart, good works, it's a regenerate heart doing works that, or a heart that belongs to the king living then as a kingdom citizen. This isn't an undermining of original sin, as if some are born essentially good apart from a need for a Savior. I think we would all agree, we would teach, that we don't become sinners because we sin, but we sin because we are sinners. All right? So that's where we are. Good and then bad would be the opposite of it. So good and bad. And then he continues there. Verse 44, for each tree is known by its own fruit, for figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor grapes picked from a bramble bush. All right, this is a simple illustration. I don't think I need to go into great detail. Your fruit tells you what you are. If you walk into a field and you see a tree, and there's a bunch of little orange balls hanging off of it. You can't insist it's an apple tree. Good guess, whoever that was. You can't say, I know like at its root that's an apple tree. It's just got some oranges going right now, but that's an apple tree. You know, th- that's what it's saying. You're known by your fruit. What fruit you're bearing tells you what is at the core, who you are. All right, simply let's define fruit just a little bit, and then we'll make our application. So what is this, the fruit that we are to be bearing that will identify who we are? In context, the fruit is, are you loving your enemy? Are you showing mercy? Are you quick to forgive? Are you seeking justice for the oppressed, for the poor? Or are you one who's quick to judge, quick to condemn, Loves mercy for yourself, but not for anyone else. Withholding forgiveness. Okay, there's the fruit that's being set in contrast through this text. By your fruit, you'll be seen what's at your core. Another way to grow on it is to, the fruit, I think, a safe and appropriate application is the fruit of the Spirit. 
When you come to Galatians 5, it lays out the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I probably shouldn't whiz through that like that's real simple for everyone. Here's the kind of fruit we should be bearing. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Tease that out a little bit. Loving others more than I love myself. Loving even those who are antagonistic towards me. Having joy in the midst of sorrow. Praising in the midst of grief. Having peace in the midst of confusion, even when you're tempted to worry, to become anxious. Patient in times of adversity. Patient in disappointment. Commit contentment to wait to see how Jesus will provide for you. Showing kindness, mercy in small ways, in inconvenient ways. Faithfulness, consistent godliness in private and in public, at home, work. Gentleness, to have a gentle and soft answer towards harsh people and harsh words. Douses water on the fire, doesn't kindle it up. Self-control, to refuse to go on those reckless binges, whether that's drunkenness, whether that's lack of self-control with your language, going off on someone. This is the kind of fruit then, as we start talking about by your fruit, you will see what kind of tree you are. This is what it looks like to be a citizen of the kingdom of God. When we get to the Lord's Prayer and we pray, your will be done, your kingdom come. We are praying the fruit of the Spirit that marks citizens of the kingdom, that marks the kingdom. Let that come, let that be apparent in my life. When it talks about out of the good treasure of your heart, when it talks about your heart, it's just kind of the core is what it's speaking of there. Belief or unbelief, alive or dead, the core of who you are. The fruit grows out of that and identifies who you are. So here is just the obvious truth being taught. If you are a citizen of the kingdom of God, your life will be marked by the works and attitudes, the fruit of the Spirit that belong to the kingdom of God, that are taught and demonstrated by Jesus. We're very quick to excuse ourselves and give ourselves a pass on kind of either the lack of fruit or, or the corrupt fruit that we're bearing. We, we can tend to... Maybe you've heard it said, either you've said, thought it about yourself or you've said it about someone else yourself is, well, you know, their heart was in the right place. Well, that, that's not who they really are. You know, they meant well. Something like that. You see it in culture all the time. I don't know, I'll use a sports analogy. I know that doesn't land with everybody, but Alex Rodriguez, baseball player, does that land with some people? He's a cheater who plays for the Yankees. Um, yeah. I'm a Red Sox fan, so I can go at this one hard. Um, 
he was setting all kinds of records and having a great year. And then you remember how everyone was getting caught with performance-enhancing drugs, and so they started going after him. Are you taking performance-enhancing drugs for like a year and a half? I mean, he was like giving these tirades, denying it totally, flat out. I would never do that, da 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 Like all of them, eventually it came out that, yes, he is. It's proven beyond a shadow of a doubt. So now he stands up to apologize. And he starts telling you that that's not who he is. Like he did it, yes, but he, that's not who he is. He respects the game. I don't lie. I, I would never do that. I did it, but that's not who I am. Maybe more recently, did you see the story with Ryan Lochte ever in the Olympics? That guy looked like a goofball, didn't he? And so he, you know, and he comes out in his statement afterwards, after, you know, going crazy and vandalizing at this gas station and a drunken stupor, then he comes out and makes up this story. He sticks to it until it's obvious he's making it up, and then his first statement is, you know, that's not who I am. Yes, it is. By your fruit, you will be known. Our political scene, I mean, isn't that constantly one candidate or the other? I mean, it doesn't matter which one you pick. It feels like they're always getting caught in a lie. They said something totally different here, and then they say something totally different over here. This group, they're conservative. With this group, they're progressive. With this, whatever it is, they're always telling you who they are and what they are. Like, don't worry about everything that you see and read and the way I've acted and voted and legislation I've tried to put through in the past. That's not who I am. I'm telling you who I am. And as Christians, we can start to act like that. Like, don't look at, at you know, violence always surrounds me, and, and, you know, I'm always in a fight with somebody, and, and I, I'm a real grudge holder, and I could care less about the unfortunate. And, but, I mean, I am that person. Like, don't pay attention to my actions that betray that total, totally. So Jesus, in a real plain and simple way, says, your fruit shows who you are. You can't live in denial. That You look, and clearly there's oranges. And you say, no, I'm an apple tree. Don't worry about it. I'm an apple tree. Just... He closes then this little section, this example, <clears throat> by then dealing with our words. He says, The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. The evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. The tongue is a true revealer of the heart. You might be able to keep it in check at times for a while, but eventually it really reveals the heart. Reveals who you are at your core, what it is you're treasuring, what it is that you are full of. By the way, it kind of overflows. James chapter 3, probably the most pointed area that, that deals with the tongue, with the way we speak. I'm going to read verses 9 through 12 just to emphasize for us the importance of the tongue. James, as he speaks of the tongue, talks about the amazing potential for good and the devastating harm and damage that your words can have. Verse 9, With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. 
From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. And then he uses the same illustration we're looking at this morning. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brother, bear olives? Or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. There's two kind of important things, I think, to look at here. First of all, James is dealing in the context of believers. So I don't want to go too far with this illustration that if every loose word you say now is a re-examination whether you're actually saved or not. James emphasizes that the tongue is incredibly hard to tame, and it can't be tamed apart from the Spirit. And we know the sin principle that resides within still. And so you're, you're going to mess up with things you say. Maybe you already have today. And so he, he deals with it that the spiritual inconsistencies with what you say doesn't determine, yes, I'm saved or I'm not saved based on one thing. But what he is saying is that the tongue, the mouth, reveals what's in the heart. If your words are typically marked by anger, by grumbling, by gossip, by whatever it might be, it reveals what's in the heart. We are to look at our words as an indication of what is in the heart. What do we treasure? What do we love? What has captured our hearts? The words aren't going to be perfect. That's not what it's calling for. But it's calling for what is the pattern of your speech? Or is it producing death and violence or is it producing health? Peace, love, and mercy. Again, kind of thinking back on the Ten Commandments, perhaps we can look at them and, and think in a forbidding way. All right, don't murder. I haven't killed anyone. Don't covet my neighbor's donkey. I haven't covet my neighbor's donkey or his maidservant or his manservant, so I'm good to go. Whatever it might be, you read in commandments, and then you think, okay, what does it require, and does your mouth betray your heart in that? Angry words pour out from a murderous heart. Grumbling and discontentment pours out of an envious heart. Words meant to fudge the truth and lead astray grow out of a lying heart. Perverted words and, and jokes and comments grow out of an adulterous heart. Your fruit, your words will show what's in your heart. So in summary, if we're seeking reformation in our own lives and we're, we're looking at our fruit and thinking, you know, I need to re-examine my heart here. When we see that fruit that is not pleasing, that is not consistent with being a citizen of the king, it shouldn't drive us to, okay, how do I make this orange appear more like an apple? Like, you know, maybe I can paint it red, I can just do a little work and kind of... No, it goes back to the core, to the heart, And how is the heart changed and transformed by ordinary means of grace? 
We always come back to this because this is where the Scripture always comes. It drives you back to the Word. It drives you back to prayer. It drives you back to gathering with the people of God. It drives you back to the table of the Lord. You notice in James how much that sounds like our time of examination at the table. You praise God with your voice, kind of the highest form you can use your words. And with the same breath and the same voice, you curse the people made in His image whom He died for. The lowest of ways that you can use your voice. And so the call in this isn't, how can I you know, punch up this fruit enough to make it look nice? The call is to go back to the ordinary means of grace that deal with the heart, the word, prayer. Let it drive you back to repentance, to belief, to trust, to pursuit of the Lord through the ordinary means of grace. All right, example two. The building and its foundation... Again, this isn't a new illustration probably for you guys. Many of you have maybe heard it before. In this illustration, every one of us is a builder building our house. To live means to be building, constructing your house. So everyone is building a house. What will be the foundation? So he starts with a question. Jesus does, why do you call me Lord, Lord? And not do what I tell you. Lord, Lord, a a title both of respect and authority, but yet repeated like that often shows intimacy. Similar as Jesus would hang on the cross, my God, my God. You you see it, that repeated name kind of draws into an intimate type relationship. And yet, Lord, you're you're recognizing him as, as master, as king. That's a fair enough question, right? Why do publicly you declare me as Lord and Master, and yet when you live, you are the Lord and Master of your own life? Another way to say, why do you say you are a king in my kingdom, and yet you live according to your own rules? Matthew Henry's commentary says this, to call... To do this, to call him Lord, Lord, without obeying him. It is putting an affront upon him to call him Lord, Lord, as if we were wholly at his command and have devoted ourselves to his service. If we do not then make a conscious effort of conforming to his will and serving the interests of his kingdom, we do but mock Christ as they that in scorn said, Hail, King of the Jews. If we call him ever so often, Lord, Lord, and yet walk in the way of our own hearts and the sight of our own eyes. Why do we call him Lord, Lord in prayer if we do not obey his commands? It's kind of a powerful illustration as they would mock him hanging on the cross, hail King of the Jews. And he said it's just as much an affront for us to say Lord, Lord, and we stand and we we kind of pray that way and we, we take that posture and yet again our actions and our fruit and our words betray it. Jesus has just said earlier that a teacher, a student, as he, when he is fully trained, will become like his teacher. If he is our Lord, our master, our great teacher, we act like we are his student, we are following him. Why do you act so differently than he acts and he commands you to act? We see this sort of language all through Jesus' teaching. 
Just listen to some of these. You can jot references down if you want to, but I'll go through a few of them. This is Jesus speaking, Matthew twelve fifty. Whoever does the will of my Father is my brother and sister. Luke eleven twenty eight. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. John thirteen seventeen. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. John fourteen fifteen. If you love me, then keep my commandments. Again in John 14, a little later, verse 24, he who does not love me does not keep my words. In John 15, you are my friends if you do what I command you. John himself will say later in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 3, we know that we have come to him if we keep his commandments. Belief and obedience belong together. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, but you live in a way as if he's not Lord? Again, this is a time for us, and we'll make some closing comments, but time for us to turn inward. Not in the defeatist, woe is me type of way. But we begin to see honestly, what, what sort of fruit are we bearing? Does it show us, tell us the inclinations of our heart, what we treasure Is there always unrest and anger that follows us? Or is there a measure of gentleness and peace? If all the fruit is saying one thing, don't bury your head in the sand and just say, no, that's not what my heart is. My heart loves the Lord. I just, you know, the fruit might say otherwise, but just trust me. No, Give yourself back to the ordinary means of grace to see transformation in the heart that then produces that kind of fruit of the Spirit that we're talking about that marks the kingdom. Verse 47. Verse 47 is a simple verse, but it kind of gives us how then we are to approach Jesus Christ in a wise manner. There's three verbs in the Greek that kind of stack up on one another that give us a real simple outline. Everyone who comes to me, coming there is the idea to, to gather around, to draw near, to enter in. So there's the first step, coming unto God, whether it's gathering with the people of God at worship, of, of putting yourself in a position to hear from the voice of God, giving yourself to the Word. The Word of God is living and active. You encounter Jesus Christ in the Word. Not just for a list of do's and don'ts or or to kind of solidify your doctrine. You encounter Jesus Christ in an interactive and living way. And He takes the Word by His Spirit and He transforms your life. It is powerful. It is active. So are you coming to the Lord, putting yourself in prayer, in the Word, with the people of God, joining at the table of the Lord? So that first aspect of coming, entering in. The second one, everyone who comes to me and then hears my Word, that is to listen, to give attentiveness, careful attention to the Word of God. It's not just to come and gather, but to give it attention to give it focus, to meditate upon it. Hopefully when you come to church, for you it's not like when you, you've been on an airplane, flight attendant starts going through the rules of here's the exits, you know, what's the, here's your exits, 
the lights and the hot, and everyone immediately just starts doing something differently, different, you know, like maybe there's one nervous person who's like getting out their folder and looking at the vomit bag and all that stuff. Everybody else is putting their earbuds in, getting their, checking their text messages for the last time. It's almost like embarrassing how little attention you pay to this person. And they're going up there through their, you know, if we're going down, the airbag will drop it out. Not airbag, I guess that's your car, but your ventilation bag, whatever. They go through all this, and you're paying zero attention. Don't cruise into church that way. <laughs> all right, the word's open. Now it's time to think about whatever. And, but no, attentiveness. So you come, you enter in, you pay attention, you give close care to what is being said, what the Word is, is instructing, what it is teaching. And finally, everyone who comes to me hears my words, thirdly, and does them. The doing there has the idea to, to put into action, to, to be set forth. And that's what he's hitting on in this passage to come, to enter in, to put yourself in a position where you hear God's Word, where you encounter Christ, to listen, to pay attention to it, not to be defensive to it, not to apply it to someone else, but to listen in your own heart, in your own life. And then that next step, then to go and put it into action, to do it. To be a kingdom citizen it includes that last step, that active pursuit of goodness, of mercy, of kindness, those things we've talked about. Then he talks about the solid foundation. The solid foundation is simple. It's Jesus Christ and His Word. That's the foundation. And if you're around buildings, you can picture a foundation. The Palestinian area, it's a little different maybe the way you would think about it is it's a very rocky area, lots of rocky soil. And so you kind of have two choices. You go to build your house, you can find a spot where it's a little more sandy, a little simpler to dig and build your house there. Or you go to where there's a bunch of rock already and you take your time and you dig out some of the sand and you flatten out the stone as much as possible. And then you start constructing on the rock that's already there. You know, the one is simple and quick. If that's what your neighbor does. I mean, his house is up and you're still working on your foundation three years later. It's not a quick fix, but that's the imagery, and, and you can think through it in um, an American sense as well, the foundation. But building your foundation upon Jesus, upon his word, digging deep, giving time, going hard after Christ and his words, he reveals himself to you in the word. It takes a little more work. It it takes some effort. It might be longer. It might not be the quick fix other people are offering. But it is a true and a solid foundation, and it proves it out when hard times come. It talks about when the stream broke against it, when resistance comes, when hardship comes. It it proves what sort of foundation you're built upon. So again, in this context of when persecution comes, hardship comes for you, you lose a loved one, you lose your job, a relationship ends, something real practical you face with, you finally have some finances and you've saved up a little bit of money and then something happens to your car and it's immediately all gone. 
when you work hard and you put in the extra time and you go the extra mile and you're passed over for a promotion again and again. Those sort of pressures, when they come streaming up against, then you begin to see what is at the core, what is the root at the core, what is the foundation that I'm built upon. Because all the facade and all the niceties are going to be wiped away and what is real is going to come out of the heart in those moments. I'm not talking about some sort of robotic stance in that you don't feel any emotion except all you want to do is praise Jesus all day long and you don't feel any other emotion or you have kind of a saying for everything. It's talking about in the midst of overwhelming grief, in the midst when you're confused and you just don't know and you feel insecure and you're frustrated, in the midst of sadness, all of these emotions, all of these situations are going to be real for you. But in the midst of that, is the fruit of the Spirit still going to flourish? Is there peace in the midst of the chaos for you? In the midst of the grief that might be real and feel overwhelming at times, is there still joy? Is there still a measure of peace? In the midst of feeling like everyone's pouring it on you, is there still an impulse of mercy and kindness towards others? And when the pressure builds and there's resistance, that's what proves then that core, that fruit, that foundation. We see this, I won't go through a bunch of hymns, I don't know how many people know some of these old hymns, but a lot of the best old hymns that have stood the test of time and have been sung and the church has gathered around for decades to worship God through or written in the crucible of pain and suffering. It is well, that might be a story you know, Horatio Spafford. He was a wealthy businessman in Chicago. They, him and his wife had three daughters and a son. They lost their son due to sickness and illness. While they're grieving that, shortly after the Chicago fire sweeps through, destroys a lot of his real estate and a lot of his fortune has gone real quickly. And they're kind of reeling and recovering from it. While he's reeling and recovering, he sends his wife and his daughters over to Europe. He's going to finish up some business and join them there. The ship on the way over gets hit by another boat. The ship sinks. His three daughters die. His wife is one of the few survivors and sends him this message, just two words, saved alone. He finishes up his business that he has to do, gets on a boat to go join his wife, obviously overcome with just huge grief. Last two or three years, his whole world turned upside down. The captain lets him know, hey, we're over the area where the ship wrecked, where your daughters died. And that's when he began to pen those words to it as well. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows rule, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. That's not a man who doesn't know grief, who doesn't feel emotion, who didn't have moments, I'm sure, of huge frustration and insecurity, but in the midst of it, you see the foundation. Fanny Crosby, another uh, lady who wrote a lot of the hymns that we sing, she was born with a few health problems and uh, 
one of the things, she came down with a sickness and was affecting her, her eyes and her face. And so they call this doctor in. Later, this doctor would find out was a hack, and he would be put in prison for malpractice. But he comes, and he makes up this dangerous concoction for her to help her. They apply it to her face. She gets burns on her face, loses her sight completely. Songs we have from her, Blessed Assurance. To God be the glory. You could go through him after him with people who, in the crucible of hardship, when the stream broke against them, and it looks like everything's in ruins in their life, you see the fruit that flourishes even in the midst of that. You see the firm foundation. And that's what's being taught here. So when hardship comes, and it will at some level, Maybe you'll experience it in a lighter level than someone else, but you'll experience it at some level, and that's a revealer of our hope and of our heart. As we close, believers find their assurance three different places. The Word is clear as you go through the Word. You look at some of the great confessions, Westminster Confession, the Canons of Dort, uh, Heidelberg. You, you go to a lot of places and as they give themselves to the Word and they come up with assurance, there's three places we find our assurance. The promises of God, the witness of the Spirit, and the evidences of Christ's grace in our lives. The fruit in our lives is where we can find assurance for our faith. It's not the only place, but it is where we find assurance for our faith. Not that we look at it and we find merit in our good works, or we look at our works and in our works alone find some confidence. But there is a promise in the gospel that everyone whom God justifies, He sanctifies and He glorifies. And as you see that fruit, you see some of that sanctification, it's not in the works alone, but it drives us back to the grace of God that has set us free from sin, that has made our hearts alive, and we are strengthened in our faith in the grace of Jesus Christ that saves us. As John 15 would put it as another illustration of the branch and the fruit and the vine. You don't, it's not by looking at, at the fruit and focusing on the fruit. But you see the fruit and you look back to the vine, you look back to the source, you look back to the foundation. The evidences of Christ's grace in your life should give you assurance of your faith. Not in a meritorious way as you've earned anything, but you see the promises of God are true. You see, this passage here should be both a command and a comfort. It should be both a promise and a warning. They don't work against each other in Scripture. They work together. That the warnings of Scripture are a means by which God is going to sanctify us. As we're called to take heed, as we're, we're called to this command that if we know Christ, we will love Him. And if we love Him, we will obey Him, and there will be fruit that is seen in that. That is both a promise and a command, a promise and a warning. You should take seriously your pursuit of holiness. This isn't a call to some in your own self-will and self-desire. Let's modify our behavior. 
but it is a call back to give yourself, to reorient your mind and your thoughts towards the Word, towards Jesus Christ. To be exposed to the Word, and as your heart is exposed to the Word, to repent of sin and to believe that Christ is enough. To lay hold of Him once again by faith. That by the Spirit you would be putting to death the deeds of the flesh. That you would be in the battle. So as I leave you, I want it to be a message of comfort and command. A message of promise and warning. We don't come to a text like this and suddenly abandon sola fide, faith alone, Christ alone, grace alone. Yet, we come to a text like this and we don't want to just sweep under the rug the force and the weight of it. Of our fruit being a sign of what is in the heart. When pressure comes, the way we react, what overspills, showing what foundation we are built upon. So let it drive you back to the Word. Do those three things laid out there in verse 47. Enter into the presence of the Lord. As often as as you can. Put yourself in situations where Christ can speak to you through His Word. The Spirit can work in you through His Word. Times privately, Bible study, in corporate gathering and worship, at the table. And then listen. Be attentive. And then as you repent, go and do. By the power of the Spirit, live out those characteristics of the kingdom. Let's have a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is clear and it instructs us. I pray that we will hear the warning and hear the promise and the word for us this morning. Lord, these are simple illustrations. Might they land on us accurately and by your spirit you teach us. Lord, there are some of us, all of us, that need to examine our hearts and our lives. There are some, Lord, who find little evidence of the grace of God and in their relationships, the way they act at work, the way they treat others, the words that come pouring from their mouth. Lord, might each one of us be quick to repent of those things, to turn for you forgiveness and healing and renewal. Lord, might we always be faithful at Redeemer to build on a firm foundation that we would present Jesus Christ and Him crucified, and we would present the Word, and we would labor and dig deep in it, that we would grow and flourish, and then when pressure and hardship comes, there would still be fruit, there would still be a sense of praising You in the storm. Lord, for those who are redeemed, You have put a new song in our heart. Praise on our lips. We know that we fall and we fail and we will do so regularly. But by your Spirit, might we pursue holiness and see growth in our love of our enemy, in our forgiving one another, in our love of mercy, in our compassion for one another. Might you produce that fruit in the Spirit, fruit of the Spirit in us. So we look to your promise. We look to the witness of the Spirit. And we look to the evidences of the grace of God in our lives. And we are strengthened in our faith. And we are driven to repentance and we are driven to rejoicing. 
And it's the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. I'm going to invite the worship team, if they would come up at this time, give you just a moment of quiet reflection in your own heart and your own mind. So could you just remain seated, heads bowed for a moment as you respond to the word in your own heart and your mind. And then just a minute, they'll lead us in a time of corporate response.